Welcome to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, where we help business leaders and individual contributors with actionable insights to hit their number and figure out the nuances of truly operating a business globally today, squeezing the essence of the lessons learned from the planet's top tech leaders. This is your guide to joining the fast track to global market scaling. Welcome back to our CRO focus series where we discuss topics like RevOps, CX, go-to-market, functional alignment, org structure, metrics, and everything else in between. We promise to give you gleanable, actionable insights from our guests who are tenured and experienced chief revenue officers of high growth SaaS companies. And again, today is no exception. We welcome Greg R. Carmen of Nuvolo, chief revenue officer. Prior to that, he was CRO at Humanize. Uh, matter site prior to that and Kaleo software he brings with him a wealth of experience where he's growing revenue by 3x and doubling his team size so we're excited to have you on the show Greg welcome thanks for having me well I suppose um, I really like the tagline across your LinkedIn profile where you have a bias for action which uh, is something I gravitate towards. You inspire team and you get results. But I suppose if you we could just wind back a little bit the clock uh, and understand your career journey thus far, some of the nuances along the journey, the mm-hmm. inflection points, decision trees, if you could maybe just share that journey with our listeners. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I've been in uh, technology and technology-related services for nearly 30 years. Uh, started as a, a developer, you know, writing code, and then about 26 years ago, found myself in sales and uh, had a chance to work for uh, what was then the, the fastest and still is the fastest growing enterprise software company in the history of tech, uh, Siebel Systems. We we grew the business from zero in revenue to over a billion in annual revenue in five and a half years. And uh, during that time, we saw meteoric growth in our customers, in our partnerships, uh, and in our employees. And then uh, from there, uh, you know, I found myself in management and, uh, you know, was a first-line sales manager for another 10 years. And then uh, uh, working with the same group of people that, that built Seed Systems and then uh, uh, found myself in, in senior leadership roles for like the last uh, 10 to 12 years, uh, where I've been uh, leading leaders of sales, marketing, and customer success organizations. Uh, and again, you know, experiencing some really, uh, really big outcomes. But I think one of the most important things to know in my journey is I've had the chance to work with a lot of people and I've had a chance to work at a lot of companies, some with meteoric outcomes, some with zero outcomes, and some with middling outcomes. So I've been able to really identify patterns that emerge uh, as leading indicators uh, to inform us, you know, what's the likely outcome, big, medium, or zero. And that served me well in my career. So tell us a little bit about some of those patterns. I mean, you, you shared with us a range of different kind of success metrics. How much of it do you feel is down to, um, you know, product market fit, uh, the execution piece, blind luck, or just hard work? What, what are those sort of categories look like from your experience across some of those roles you shared? Well, the first thing is people say this, but I'll try to give it to you in operational terms. It starts with people in the team. And what I've learned is it's much more important who you work with and how you work 
than it is what you do. And uh, so let's put that in operational terms. Hiring people that are highly competent, that also have shared values. And that means people from all different walks of life, from all different parts of the world, but who, who follow the same North Star when it comes to how to get work done. For me, that's collaborative, that's thoughtful, that's listening first versus speaking first. That's in this world, the ability to be quantitative and qualitative uh, with subject matter expertise at the same time. So it starts with the people, but then to your point, then it comes to execution, because this is what I found. If, if you're working with a group of people that have shared values that are highly competent, your ability to understand where you are, understand how you're traversing where you need to go is much, much better. So just imagine that um, if you were to put a bunch of people on an airplane and if your job was to uh, find the flight attendants for that airplane, you wanna make sure that you have flight attendants that when you get turbulence, they're not running up and down the aisle screaming, oh my gosh, we have turbulence. Oh my gosh, we have turbulence. You want people that have been there, done that, people that are calm. You know, hey, everybody, there's going to be a bumpy ride. Everyone buckle up, make sure your, your, your seatbelts fastened. And then they go and they sit where the flight attendants sit and they buckle up and fasten their seatbelts. And it's, it's really understanding uh, when you have that shared group, that, that, those, that team that has shared values and are highly competent, you're able to understand clearly where you are, where you're going, and be able to understand when you go through the ups and downs in that journey. Um, that they are merely ups and downs on the journey. They're not the destination. Fantastic. Um, I love that. And, and it really is about, as you said, the, the execution piece that if, if it comes to, you know, the turbulence piece or something happens that people actually execute on what they're supposed to be doing at that time. Um, you know, there, there's always the, uh, there's always the hypothetical elements, you know, and, I suppose somebody um, in, in your role um, kind of uh, gets the pleasure of seeing all of that in action, you know, that um, the, the action really is, is kind of uh, what helps to determine all of these outcomes that, um, that you want to see, you know. So we're, we're going to get into, you know, the conversations around um, go-to-market strategy and, you know, and, and again, the strategy is only as good as the execution part, you know. Um, so... I mean, the objective, Greg, is we're here to shine the light on, on what I call revenue innovators, special people like you that, that traverse across every revenue function uh, or every revenue generating function um, of their company, not just sales. Mm-hmm. Um, so the topics that you've chosen to discuss with us, um, that you've kindly chosen to discuss with us today are around kind of that, that go-to-market uh, budget allocations, how do you do that, and, and revenue planning, et cetera. You know? So yeah. for, for context and for our listeners, what, what's your sales motion? Is it enterprise high velocity, high velocity, strategic, partner-led, or kind of all of the above? And how has that changed over time? So, so it's all of the above, but, um, but to put some, some, uh, some context with it, we have a high-velocity business that um, is on the upper end of the transaction size for high velocity. But these are these are transactions that we find and close within 60 to 75 days. So find them and within two to two and a half months, the business is closed. Um, we have uh, direct selling with, with enterprise strategic pursuits uh, that take anywhere between uh, three and a half months and 18 months 
from source to close. You can imagine that we have a very large public sector business and some of those transactions clearly take about 18 months. Um, but then we also serve you know, the high tech market where you can find and close a meaningful piece of business in under four months. And then we also have a, uh, a significant partner ecosystem. And that partner ecosystem you know, is really into three categories. A, a strategic advisory group. So imagine the Deloitte's, the Accenture's of the world, um, a uh, technology services uh, provider group. So uh, imagine folks that are adept at implementing on the technology that we built our, our software application on. So these are pure implementation specialists, um, everything from niche boutique firms that are 100 plus uh, consultants to large global ones, but are still specialists where there could be thousands of consultants worldwide. And then the third one are, are technology alliances. So imagine um, um, product uh, integration solutions or product OEM solutions that we bring into our product or, or our product gets brought into uh, where we are, uh, we're either using someone else's technology to serve a specific function in, in our software application or our software application is being white labeled as part of an overall uh, managed service provider uh, solution for some large uh, multinational firm. So that's that's our uh, that's our distribution uh, strategy for our go-to-market model. Fantastic, yeah. And in terms of that planning piece, that 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 go-to-market planning piece, de determine how. You, you're going to serve your customers the the objectives you have to achieve the markets you're going to compete in and, and the competition mm -hmm. you're going to face and and ultimately how you're going to win um all of those elements i suppose the the big dilemma a lot of the time for for SaaS organizations is really who's your target you know where are you going to place your chips or your big bets and um, what informs that kind of go-to-market planning piece um uh, for you guys and how do you decide what markets you go after well you know, we're, we're eight years into the journey now. Uh, we have a couple hundred customers. Um, and, and during the eight year period, especially during the last three and a half years, um, two vertical markets have really emerged. And that's just by nature of, of winning business um, and, and having uh, established user communities so that we, we've surpassed product market fit, we've surpassed repeatability. So that means we know that if we were to, uh, let's look at the, 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 the litmus test for product market fit. If you were to no longer offer your product, would your customers be in distress? Yes, therefore you have product market fit. Um, and then in terms of repeatability, do we know who buys our product for about how much and for, for a, a, a consistent business value purpose? And the answer to that is yes for two markets, the US public sector, um, as well as the US and Canadian healthcare markets. Now those businesses have emerged. So then what happens now it, this really gets to your question. Early, before you get product market fit, you're looking for which vertical market is going to take off. But right now, we're, we're entering a scale-up phase where we're going to scale up and break through 100 million in ARR sometime within the next 24 months. And, and as a result, those vertical markets, U.S. public sector and U.S. healthcare, uh, now we need to further broaden our product offering to really establish a, a significant uh, moat, technology moat for competitors to, to, to have to traverse before they can compete against us. And then there are adjacent markets to each one of those where we can further expand. In the case of healthcare, there's a natural expansion into life sciences. 
And we're, we're starting to do that where we are incubating a life sciences vertical market and with the objective in, in this next year to meet product market fit and to meet repeatability. So that in 2023 and going into 2024, we can develop a reliable scaling business for life sciences. Um, in the US public sector, we're going to replicate that model in other parts of the world like the UK and Australia to begin with. Um, but we're also going to transplant that into highly regulated industry starting in the US and Western Europe in terms of the energy and utilities market um, because they, they operate uh, very similarly and their challenges for our product capabilities are there. So going back to your question, how do you determine which markets to grow into? First, you look at your technology and once your technology establishes a clear beachhead, um, you then look to, to make sure that, that your customers needs are being met so that if you were to take away the product, they would be in high distress. Therefore, you've met product market fit. And then you make sure that as they use the product that they're capturing the value they need. Because the real secret to um, a software business and its go-to-market is not recurring revenue. That's a lagging indicator. It's recurring value for your customer. And if you can start with that as your focus, how do we deliver recurring value for our customer? Then you'll be able to address and discuss your product needs to meet that. And then you'll be able to address and meet your go-to-market needs to deliver that. So I, I hope that gets to your question, but that's how we did it. We had two markets that emerged. We're now developing adjacent markets. Um, and then from, those from the markets that have emerged, we're going to uh, further broaden our product offering to create a bigger technology moat. And then we're going to continue to incubate adjacent markets. Um, and once we reach product market fit, then we'll scale those markets. Yeah, it's hugely insightful, actually. And the, you know, the, the old saying, not all markets operate equally. How important is customer acquisition costs and lifetime value when you're making these assessments? Well, it's, it's critical. Okay. It's critical. For example, I mentioned the, uh, the U.S. public sector. If the U.S. public sector was our only market that we focused on in the first eight years, um, then we would have a customer acquisition costs and a payback period that would be extremely risky. And so it'd be you know, a very high CAC and a very long payback period, but the LTV is significantly huge. So that, but that would be out of balance. So by counterbalancing that with the US healthcare market during a period of rapid, um, uh, rapid rollout of regulations requiring uh, digital transformation, uh, requiring a change in the use of technology, which then opens the door for us, we could then counterbalance that with smaller LTV than the US public sector market, but still meaningful, um, lower CAC and lower payback periods. So then you balance that out. So it's very important. Life sciences, as I mentioned, we're entering that market. Um, it has its own CAC, its own payback period, its own LTV. Um, and that seems to be very consistently aligned with the US healthcare market. And then as we, we transplant to other public sector markets around the world, uh, I think we're going to, uh, you know, again, be mirroring our U.S. public sector in there. Now, one of the things that we also do, though, to counterbalance this whole thing, I mentioned earlier that we have a high velocity business as well. Our high velocity business has a very low CAC, a very low payback period. Now, the LTV is smaller, but what it does is it risk mitigates 
the entire selling motion and, and should I say the recurring revenue risk across the entire business. So imagine that today we have 200 customers, which we, we do plus or minus five or 10. And a year from now, we'll have 400 customers. 60 to 65% of those new customers will come from our high velocity business. But 80% plus of our recurring revenue will come from the rest of the business. So it's a real good counterbalancing strategy. And, and that's, how, that's how we're implementing ours. When we look at the, the distribution mechanisms of our go-to-market, it's really to counterbalance um, all these items like CAC, payback period, LTV, um, as well as um, where you can get to average uh, transaction size. So when you look at the LTV, that really starts to address a metric a lot of us track called ARPA, ARR per account. Yeah. But we also look at average uh, deal size, which is the transaction size. So for us, we also like to approach businesses where it's not just an order a year or an order every three years, like an order every six months. Again, risk mitigating where there might be some, some lumpy business elsewhere uh, in, our, uh, in our market strategy. Yeah, because it's hugely important um, looking at those two elements from a churn perspective as well in terms of customer numbers versus just actual revenue. Because, you know, you could lose one customer um, and, and that might not even be a blip on the radar in terms of the number of customers you have, but it could be a huge amount of revenue from that customer as well. Yeah, well, in fact, what we do there is we may, we have two metrics. So, so think about this. There's a strategy and then there's an operational plan. Yeah. For the operational plan, we look at two things. Net deal retention rate, which uh, tracks the, uh, the actual dollar value of your current customers that are up for renewal and how much of that you retain. And we benchmark ours at 110%. So regardless of how many reductions in logos we get, we want to see that current customer base that's up for renewal in any period be an adder around 110% of the value that it started with. Yeah, and plus, then, plus that tells you that if you never signed a customer ever again, the company would still be making money. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then on the flip side, the, the second metric we track is, is, uh, is churn, which is just the sheer number of, of logos or customers that are up for renewal in a given period and how many uh, you're able to retain. And we benchmark ours at 97%. Uh, the benchmark for the industry is 95, but we benchmark ours at 97%. Wow, so, that's so we like gross. Is that net churn or gross churn? Th that is, uh, that is uh, uh, let, let me make sure I understand the difference. This is the way we calculate. You can tell me if this is gross or net. Okay, go ahead. Um, if there are 10 customers up for renewal this year, yeah. And, and if let's do 100 because of the percentage. If there are 100 customers up for renewal this year, and if we retain 97 of those and only three churn, then we've met our benchmark. At the same time of those 97 that we retain, if the, uh, if the net ARR of that, including the churn ARR, is 110% or more than what we started with during the renewal period, then we've met that benchmark for net deal retention rate. Yeah, it's actually both. And there's a mixture of both there. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. the it's the, the revenue number and the customers again, right? So the, right. Um, yeah, wow, the, the, you guys are rocking and rolling over there because the the revenue number, so so although you could retain 97 
out of those hundred customers, you might retain eighty percent of the revenue, right? So, which legislates for you know, um, which is uh, bad, which is which is very bad. Yeah, yeah you know, exactly. And, and, and the reality is, you could also if you if you don't have a if you don't have a really good risk mitigated what I refer to as a counterbalanced go to market strategy, uh, you could be at ninety nine percent customer retention. You lose one out of hundred customers in a year, and that one that you lost. If you don't have a really good risk mitigated uh, market strategy, that could result in a twenty percent midfield retention reduction, yes. leaving you at eighty percent, and then that tells you that you're you're not going to do very well. You're not going to do very well. You kept your well, you yeah, kept not, your, not if your you least profitable that. businesses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah you, you kept your least profitable businesses, um, and, and you weren't able to keep your most profitable. So, you know, for us. Um, I'll go back to a prior question. It starts with people. They have shared values. And the shared value that is the most important shared value is that, that recurring value for our customers is the center of the wheel. It is where everything starts from. I was going to go back to that, sales, actually. So, so I was curious, how do you assess that or measure that? That was the burning question in my mind. On, on, um... Well, it, it's a great question. When, when, uh, when you are looking for people that share that value, you want to, whether it's in customer success, in marketing, in sales, in partnerships, whether it's for leadership roles in the company, it's very specific examples of quantifiable value um, that folks can recall. And the challenges to achieve that value, the challenges to monitor that value, and the collaboration that was required with the customer on what the baseline value target was gonna be. And if a person cannot navigate that strategy, navigate that discussion adeptly, then they're not, they're, they don't share the value. So imagine this, let's take two metaphors, sports and arts. Yeah, love it. If you're gonna cast an actress for a movie and uh, it's an action movie and she has only ever been in romantic comedies, and you ask her, you know, how she would, you know, what's what's your take on action movies? How would how would you portray this? And she only is able to portray it in how she's done in romantic comedy. That may not be a good casting fit for the movie. Um, at the same time, if you're uh, if you want to take a sports analogy in the U.S., you know, we're in football season. So in football, if you're trying to, to draft a quarterback, uh, but you think there's a really good athlete who's a wide receiver. And you're like, I wonder if he could play quarterback. That may not really be a good draft decision. If you would ask the person, well, how would you manage the huddle? How would you manage the audibles at the line? I don't know. I'm a receiver. I don't do that. You ask the actors, how would you manage this, this action move? I, I don't know. I've only been in romantic comedies. Um, that's, that's how you judge it. What you're looking for is you're looking for very specific cast fits. They don't have to be experts in the field but they have to have, be experiential experts. I've experienced this. And, and for anyone in our career who really does understand this value epicenter, it is usually a passion. And the reason why it's a passion is at least in enterprise software, in my 30 years, um, companies have either been talk or action on this. And, and I have found that um, employees well, I don't want to say employees. Everybody that's in this business of, of software, of enterprise software, 
um, has either found it to be acceptable if it's just words, therefore they're not a fit, or they're passionate about the need for it to be the center of the business. And, um, and usually there are a bunch of scars along the way with customers not getting the value for the software they purchased and people actually care about that. So how do you actually filter for it? Uh, you wanna make sure somebody can actually share real life stories. They're passionate about it. They can do the quantification of it just as easily as they can do the qualitative. And what's the difference? There was a business who aimed to save $100 million. They'd only saved a million dollars two and a half years into their three-year subscription. And we moved heaven and earth to help them change their entire alignment and use of the software so, they, so that they could achieve at least half of that. That's the quantitative part. And let me tell you something. People lost their jobs at that client during that two and a half year period because they had bought our software and they hadn't met it. And I was determined to make sure that the remaining leadership wasn't going to not only lose their job, but they were going to be praised and possibly promoted. So it's being able to navigate both those and, and really being able to understand that you've experienced it, you understand the importance, and you don't want to be a part of an organization where it's not the center. Yeah, one word really, impact. Impact is what you said was going to happen and, and what you agreed, you know, is that actually happening? And are they, is on the client side, are they experiencing the impact that um, was sold to them in the first place? And it's kind of like giving someone an iPhone and telling them, yeah, sure. We, 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 but, but, you know, in order for it to be effective and impactful, you, you're going to have to develop some apps. And in order to do that, um, you know, we can give you plenty of training, you know, mm -hmm. there's loads of training videos, but the, the problem there is that the, that's the huge difference, right? Between training and, and actually taking the customer by the hand and helping them to you know get those business critical outcomes that were supposed to happen to impact their organization it blows my mind you know when 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 i i see organizations um you know in during the course of a sales process you learn a lot about the client's goals yeah. and and this value piece that that we're discussing here and so much of that is just lost when the deal is closed and handed over to customer success it's it's mind blowing. So I, I would imagine that you guys have like a seriously strong connection between pre and post sales. Well, it, it's the, it, it, there are, uh, I, I would say the biggest transformation that's required in any organization, any, any go-to-market strategy where uh, customer, recurring customer value is at the epicenter is inoculating the entire business, the entire business, not just the go-to-market department, the entire business, product, engineering, finance, the leadership team, inoculating the entire business with that, um, that need for recurring customer value to be at the center. And then it's implementing the operational practices for interdepartment collaboration, interdepartment exchange of information, um, that is value focused and that means you need tools you need technologies you need some training along the way and then you have to nurture it and make sure that you're actually uh the processes that you designed are actually being used and not used for compliance reasons used to make sure we're marking 
baselining what the recurring value will be and that we're tracking and reporting back to the customer and that we're getting the feedback loop from the customer so that we're able to actually report what the customer's point of view is. It, it is the hardest part. It is the biggest lift in, in the transformational journey that's required for this. So it's not just an exchange between, um, pr- between sales and post-sales. That is hard, but it's not just with that. Um, it really requires the entire organization to be on board with it. And so this is the big learning I've had in my career on this. I mentioned there's a difference between those companies that are talk about value and those that actually delivered it. Um, those that actually delivered it implemented across the entire organization. Um, it wasn't just a sales strategy. It wasn't just a, an ROI calculator on a website. Um, it was everywhere in the business. And uh, if, you, if you miss that, then it's really hard. Uh, it's really hard to deliver on recurring value for your customers. It's really hard to deliver a simple transfer of information and knowledge from sales to, to CS um, if the entire organization isn't wrapped around the value uh, of recurring value for your business, for your, for your clients, that is. Yeah, because it is about that trust to, you know, trust people with information um, at every point to allow for that incredible engagement with a customer where you're bringing data to the table to say, here's, here's how it's looking. Um, here, here's mm-hmm. where we started. Here's how it, how it's looking. You guys had had this gap. We wanted to get here. We want to do this. Here's how it's looking. And then, you know, like very authentic recommendations around. Well, people who do this, they see this result, and people who do that, you know, kind of this happens. Uh, you know, perhaps um, this has been underutilized over here and we really want to get you to hear you know would it would it be a crazy idea you know for for us to 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 kind of run a little workshop here to do this and do that and you know all of that stuff right that that that's powerful isn't it like that's that's not many people do that properly yeah it's 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 hard work it's because it requires all departments in an organization to share that value yeah, because finance are looking at this and they're going, well, you know, there's no immediate revenue spinning from this. That's from right. some of and, these initiatives. And, 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 you know? and if, that's the, if that's the point of view, then it's hard to get the rest. It's hard to get the <laughs> investing that you need yes. in order to build the technology, in order to hire the right people, in order to build the right organization. And that's just one example. Imagine them product. If you want to actually track the value um, that's recurring for your customer, you may want to collaborate with your product and engineering teams because there might be a way to actually track that journey within your existing application, making it easy or easier, I should say, for your clients uh, to verify how much value they're capturing over time. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. As we round the corners here, I wanted to get it. There's so much I wanted to get into, but um, can we talk about, uh, so in terms of revenue planning, um, mm-hmm. planning typically falls into two cadences. There's your traditional annual annual planning cadence um yep. which usually focuses on time time bound initiatives like year end and you know so so I, com- mm-hmm. compensation planning quota design org structure territory design all that stuff um kind of falls into that bucket and then there's the agile planning stuff don't think we'll get to the agile planning but in terms of this annual planning and i'd imagine you're probably um you know uh, kind of coming out of the good end of that at this stage and, you know, kind of with an eye on, on 2022 or 2023 even. Um, the 
the quota design, quota planning, that kind of thing. How do you do it? And, and I'll just give you um, um, a small bit of context here is that a lot of organizations that I've been involved with, typically, you know, they kind of dehumanize the whole thing and they forget that there's people on the end of this. And, and, mm -hmm. and they say that, you know what, let's just add 10% onto everybody's quota and we'll do X and Y. And that's how we're going to get to the number. If we had everybody sell, you know, just kind of, you know, uh, two more products or one more product, that's how we're going to get to the number as well. And they don't legislate for a ramp up or, you know, uh, they don't kind of split out the tenured reps from, from, from the reps who are only there 12 months and everybody yeah. gets the same quota regardless of what their territory could potentially yield. So that's the ugly stuff. <laughs> so I'm sure you do it much better. How do you, how do you design quotas or kind of, can yeah. you give us some insights around that? Well, so uh, we really triangulate from three back from three vectors. Okay. The first is um, just what have we done the last twenty four months per rep? You know what, what's what's been that journey? Are we are we get what's the productivity per rep actual performance? Um, the the second one is a, a grassroots, or should I say bottoms up approach where uh, our sales managers, our frontline sales managers, um, look at the pipeline. For the period in question, say the twelve-month period in question, um, and they look at the uh, the coverage per rep, and we give them the actual twenty-four month yield for the pipeline, not the close rate, but the yield. Basically, that says, you know, if I have a hundred million in the pipeline, um, on average, how much of that do I close in a given time period? And so, for for software companies, that yield usually ranges between twenty and thirty-three percent. So like one in every three deals for 33%, one in every five deals for 20%. But it ranges in that 20 to 33% yield. Um, so then that second vector is based on the actual pipeline, you know, how much coverage is there? Is there sufficient coverage? You know, if you were to just take our normal yield, what would be the likely outcome? And then the third vector we look at are just market economics. Um, in our, in our space, you know, what are the comparable quotas out there uh, when, when our competitive peer group is recruiting uh, our sales talent? And so then we, we triangulate on those. So we might have historically 500,000 in productivity per person per year over, over, the last, um, over the last 24 months. We may have uh, with a 25% yield we may have enough pipeline on average for everybody in, in, in the business to be able to support $575,000 in productivity in the next 12 month period. Um, and uh, the, uh, the average quota, uh, when you look at our, our competitive peer group is about 15% higher than our assigned quota. Okay, so can we, can we lift our quota up uh, by 10 to 15% and still give people a reasonable uh, expectation that they're going to meet or exceed quota. And is there sufficient pipeline in the business to do that? And historically, have people been able to, to even come close to that performance level? And where it gets really worrisome is when those three vectors aren't even related to each other. Let's just say 300,000 productivity per rep. There's 700,000 um, in, in pipeline capacity uh, performance for each rep uh, based on the yield and the average quota in the market is 1.1 million then you go oh no what would now that tell you actually that would probably tell you that that you don't actually need more reps you just need your your current reps well, to do better 
so the, the, there, there is a metric out there which is a really good helping hand on this, and it's called the SAS magic number, and it's an index. Um, it's a zero to one. It's it, it, it actually can go over one, but it's an index that's balanced on the unit of one that looks at CAC and payback period based on uh, how much sales and marketing spend you have versus revenue, and um, if you're if you're at one, um, you should. Uh, potentially invest more in sales and marketing. If you're below 0.75 on that index, you're spending too much. And if you're above 1.25, you're, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. So what happens is when you get in that conundrum where nothing lines up, just go back to your sales and marketing spend. Look at whatever index you use for us, it's the SAS magic number to determine, are you under investing in sales and marketing? Now, in this case, if I saw that kind of data, I'd say we need to invest a heck of a lot more in in targeted marketing efforts to make sure we get to the right people make sure we get to the right people because we're going to raise quotas but we got to make sure that the productivity per rep is up i would also probably be looking at the profile of the reps have we hired the right people because something tells me if the quotas are a lot higher in the market and if we have the ability to support all this in our pipeline are we doing something wrong in our selling motion so uh, but but again there there are ways to sort of um uh, get a, a, a tie, uh, to break a tie vote when something doesn't make sense. But that's when it gets worrisome is when the data comes back and it's just not related uh, amongst each other. Very good. Yeah, because I mean, the model is it's a land grab out there and you need to go as fast as you can. Um, so so uh, as you pointed out, if if your ratio was one to two or one to three, it just means you're leaving a shit ton of value there on the table and you, you, you really yeah. need to start spending money because it, it, it's kind of a paradox, really. It's, it, you know, it, it, like, you know, marketing may, you know, be patting themselves on the back to say, hey, we're getting we're getting really good bang for our buck here. You know, we're, 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 con we're actually conserving money and we're getting, but it, the, the name of the game is not to conserve money. It's to get the best, yeah. best value, right? You know, for your audience, I'd say the most often when there's, when there's lack of, of, when there's incongruity amongst those three vectors, it's usually that your pipeline is freakishly high mm -hmm. and your yield on your pipeline is freakishly low, like one in six, one in seven, we're talking like 12 and a half percent yield. And where your productivity per rep um, is also low, but no. where the quotas are high. So usually that's where you end up in the conundrum. And what that tells you is, you have a targeted marketing problem and you have a sales rep uh, enablement problem. That's usually what happens when it's usually that the market is higher than what your metrics can support. That's usually the conundrum that people will find themselves in when there is a, a tough challenge to overcome. Um, and, and that means you have to do, uh, you have to improve your, um, uh, your buyer personas um, you have to improve your packaging and pricing. You got to improve your value proposition and messaging, all part of a go-to-market strategy. And uh, you probably have to make some investment in your sales enablement and training to improve how your folks are, are uh, executing in the process. Uh, but that's usually the big conundrum uh, when you have to face it. Fortunately, in, in our market and in our experience at Nuvolo, uh, we don't have that problem.
It doesn't sound like it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's some fantastic insight there, Greg. Really, really appreciate that. As we round the corner and we just finish up here, we always ask our guests um, what their superpower is and how it has served them uh, personally and, and for the organizations that they've worked for up until this point. So could you share with us what your superpower is, Greg, please? Yeah. And it's really twofold. You know, mine is, uh, um, you know, finding highly talented people and, and working well. Uh, with those folks and, and thin slicing rather complex problems, being able to uh, to listen to uh, a very long, complex issue being described and then being able to thin slice it, whether it's related to a deal in negotiations, whether it's related to uh, go-to-market strategy and planning, revenue planning, budgeting, whether it's related to an internal personnel problem, it's that ability to thin slice down to the real uh, issues at hand and then solve those real issues versus maybe uh, the noise around those issues. But it's, uh, uh, it, like I said, it starts with people. I, I've just found that who you work with and how you get work done is a heck of a lot more important than what you do. Couldn't agree with you more. And it, it is um, probably the best superpower to have for somebody in your role. Well, look, Greg, it's been an absolute pleasure to, um, having this discussion with you today. You're certainly what, what I would call a true revenue innovator. And there are tons of insights here for, for our audience. And we, uh, we hope to have you back on the show again at some stage. Well, John, I, I enjoyed it and I, I wish you the best. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and from my perspective, just to reiterate that point, I think comprehensive, yet leaving more for exploration. So thanks again, Greg, much appreciated. You've been listening to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, designed for both established and aspiring career-focused tech rock stars, as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world. For further details, check out sf-talent.com.